Honestly Speaking, where telling the truth at a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. You know, um, I've been saying that quote for a long time. And for people who listen to me on a regular basis, they know that I say that before every podcast. I say it at the beginning. And I never really thought that I would see the day where where our, the streets of our American cities look like a revolution. I want you to stay tuned for a really powerful, insightful conversation I have with this week's guest, conservative author and speechwriter and all around thoughtful guy, Peter Wenner, who has been very critical of the Trump presidency. And he's been what some call the conservative conscience of the conservative movement. And we have a really, really fascinating conversation. We touch on why is it so hard for Republicans to face issues of race? Why have they been so hypocritical, especially in the evangelical community, in their support for Donald Trump and what this all means? So Peter Wenner, my conversation with him is coming up after I um, express some thoughts. I have some things on my heart that I need to say about what's been going on. Um, It's been a really, really exhausting week, emotionally, politically. I've cried tears. I've, I've screamed and cursed at the television. I've had some tough conversations. Uh, this is really, really, really been a tough, tough, tough week. I, um, and I know I'm not the only one. I know there's a lot of people out there who have done a lot of soul searching, who have just felt the pain and anguish of millions of Americans after seeing the the horrific video of George Floyd being killed by police officers in Minneapolis. And this wasn't your typical case where, was it a justified use of deadly force, where there were some circumstances that are a little bit um, murky, you know, not as cut and dry as some other things. No, there was a video with this man being subdued by a white officer putting his knee on his neck for nine minutes, three minutes of which he was unconscious. He begged for his life. He told he told them he couldn't breathe. Bystanders pleaded with the police to take the knee off his neck, and it the, the those. Cries and pleas went unanswered, and unfortunately, George Floyd died as a result. You know, listen, I am, I, I usually come from a different point of view on these cases. Many of you know that I'm biracial, and I grew up in a law enforcement household. My mom is white, my father is Afro Latino from from Guatemala. So I have a bit of a different perspective when it comes to law enforcement and police contact, police conduct, because I grew up in a thin blue line household. My grandfather was the captain of our town police for four, 39 years, 40 years. He was a patrol captain. So I grew up respecting police, not fearing them. I grew up with a very romanticized um, view of police. 
because that's that was my exposure. My husband is a federal law enforcement officer. He's black. He grew up in Brooklyn. Um, not to say that I don't, you know, hold police to account, but my default position is always to look at it from the law enforcement perspective because that's how I grew up. But I've got to tell you, in a situation like this one, it is really, it's opened my eyes to some things that I may not have been as receptive to in the past. And I recognize that there is enough of a problem with police misconduct against people of color in this country that we need to have a serious conversation. Is it the overwhelming majority? No, I still don't believe that. But is there a, an issue where police reform needs to happen? Yes, I think I'm, I have come to that conclusion. Some people might say, well, where have you been? What are you looking at? It's, um, you know, I come from a different perspective, different environment. So this idea of police misconduct and brutality and inequality, it, it, I didn't grow up around that. But I'm not naive to the historical context and the systemic inequities in our criminal justice system and policing. So, and I'm the first person to, to call for reform when it needs to happen. And this is one of those cases for sure. Um, I, you know, I reached out to some of my law enforcement friends and I asked them, what do you suggest? How do you guys feel? Cause I can tell you right now, maybe one or two who are old school, who are still holding on to a very primitive way of policing. Let's just say that short of that, actually, I should say there's only one of the people that I know who wasn't as horrified as most people were about the George Floyd killing. But every other police officer I know, young and old, was horrified by that. And they say to me, no, nobody hates a bad cop more than a good cop because it gives them all a bad name. And that's true. But I also said that police officers have to do a better job of policing themselves. You know, the, the thin blue line, I get it. I get the brotherhood and I get the value of it. But when you have a case of misconduct so blatant as this one, and it wasn't just the one officer. There were four of them. Only one's been arrested and charged with murder. The other three who stood by and did nothing um, and were participating in putting their knees in the backs of this guy, of, of George Floyd, they all should be charged. You know, that is, that is, there's uh, not acceptable what they did. But, but to my fellow law enforcement brethren out there, listen, you guys have got to do a better job of policing yourselves and we've got to start finding out ways to reform policing. We've got to get back to a community policing concentration. Those programs are successful in the communities where they're, where they're trained properly and where those tactics are deployed in ways where the, you, your neighborhood and your community come first, where the officers, are, they, they know that protecting and serving their neighbors is the priority, not treating people like their enemy combatants. And that's happening in way too many neighborhoods. The over-militarization of our police departments, a lot of that happened post 9-11. And I understand, you know, counterintelligence and um, 
being prepared for massive terrorist attacks. I mean, that 9-11 shook this nation in a way that we hadn't seen since Pearl Harbor. So that was the reaction. But also, it's created some, I think, barriers between the police officers and their communities. And listen, some communities can be tough. It's a two-way street, right? Respect for the police and authority has to also be taught young. And I've always been a big proponent of community programs like Citizen Police Academies. I've gone through one. I find that that it was an incredible learning experience. And it gives people in the community an opportunity to see the type of training and scenarios and things that law enforcement officers go through so that you as a citizen understand the thought process of many of these officers and in the scenarios and why they do what they do. And on the flip side, the police officers get to interact more with the community they serve. So for example, places like New Haven, Connecticut, I often talk about their community policing emphasis because I think that they're a really good example. New Haven was crime-ridden for a very long time. That's where Yale University is. That's the other side of New Haven, right? Um, well, no, actually, Yale is in a interesting part of New Haven. But anyway, New Haven had a police chief that made the decision that community policing must be the priority. And this was after 9-11. As I mentioned, there had been a different focus on police tactics that were responding to domestic terrorism threats or, you know, foreign terror threats. And there was a change in attitude. He said, enough is enough. And we're going to go back to focusing on walking the beat. And in New Haven, starting in the academy, they put an emphasis on bringing in, A, people who are from the community or have some investment there if they can, but also to put place people in community um, scenarios so they get to learn who these people are, who they are in the neighborhood, the cultural dynamics, and it builds trust between from both sides, between the police and the communities they serve. You know, in New Haven, the, the chief said, look, rookies, they have to walk the beat for at least a year, if not two, before they get to patrol in a car. Because you can't just drive on by and separate yourself from the people you serve if you're on the beat, walking the beat. That needs That's the type of attitude we need to have. And there was a, a study that just came out about, I don't know, I think it was in the fall of last year, about this, it was one of the first, uh, they call them longitudinal studies because it was over a large, uh, a long period of time with a larger group. But it was really the first time that there was a measurable study done on the, the impacts of community policing. And surprise, surprise, it showed that there was a measurable increase in trust between residents and the police when you had an emphasis on community policing. It's a no-brainer. We've got to get back to that. We've got to get back to that because what I've seen happen over the last week with the protests breaking out, first starting off peacefully, devolving into anarchy in over 70 cities across this country, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. People are dying People are dying now in these protests and things. It's completely gotten out of control. And the president of the United States is hiding out in the White House for days 
doesn't say anything. He goes to the shuttle launch down in Cape Canaveral, which was very cool, by the way. But still, he goes down to the launch and, and makes a couple of disingenuous comments about George Floyd. Nobody believes him. But he says on his way there, oh, MAGA, MAGA loves the blacks. Are you fucking kidding me? MAGA loves the blacks? First of all, it already implies that black people aren't included in the MAGA crowd, whatever the hell they are, whoever they are, those lunatics. And anyone who says uh, puts an article in front of a group, the whomever, is a freaking bigot. MAGA loves the blacks. Yeah, okay. Donald Trump's history of racial bigotry is well-established. Nobody freaking believes that, okay? He thinks that people of color are lesser than and they don't deserve the same and he acts like it. That's why he has shown no interest in trying to have a real conversation about fixing the problems. He doesn't care. He doesn't think they deserve it. It's obvious. It's obvious. And we cannot accept this as a country. We cannot keep a man like this in the White House. We just can't. Our lives literally depend on it. I don't know how we get out of this, um, but I can tell you that some of the images that I'd seen um, of, of protests where police officers have, have walked with peaceful protesters or taken a knee with protesters who are out there chanting Black Lives Matter in a peaceful way, not antagonizing. That is, um, that's how you start to heal the process. There's a lot of healing that has to happen. And I commend the, the chiefs and sheriffs across the country who have done that in places like Camden, New Jersey, in Santa Cruz, California, Flint, Michigan, and many other places. I started to see more videos posted to social media of police officers who were being empathetic with protesters and saying, we hear you. That's how it starts. Because I've got news for you. We damn sure are not going to see leadership coming out of the White House. That is not happening. Because we have a psychopath occupying the White House who gets off on the idea of unleashing our military and this fake sense of bravado because he's such a freaking coward, but he hides behind his his big bad military and secret service agents and blah, 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 blah. You know, that bellicose language that he uses. He's such a small pathetic, cowardly, man-child psychopath. And I cannot believe that the people of this country elected this bastard. Donald Trump is an existential threat to our democracy. I have said this from day one, and I will say it again. And for those people who argue with me and say and think that Donald Trump is the greatest thing since sliced bread... You need some serious self-reflection. Those people need to look inside themselves and think about what is it about this guy that I'm attracted to? What is wrong with me? That that's my idea of a leader, of a man, of of um, someone I would trust our country and our democracy with? Like, what is wrong with people? Donald Trump's behavior from day one has been abhorrent, but the way he has 
just completely thrown matches on this tinderbox is disgusting. It's disgusting. He, this country is hurting and we can argue about how we got here, but, and you know, there's plenty of legitimate conversations to have, but we can't even have those conversations because people are behaving out of emotion. They're lashing out because they're fucking fed up. And I understand that. I get it now. My mom and I were having this conversation. She said, you know what? I get it. Not saying that rioting, rioting and looting and all that is the right thing to do. But when people feel hopeless, they have no other way to express it. Now, the caveat here is that things have gotten out of control and there has literally been anarchy in our cities. Here in Washington, D.C., I mean, I, I was watching just, I mean, all over, but landmarks that I know and locations and watching things burn and people defacing our, our historic landmarks and buildings, like what the hell? That's out of control, okay? That is no longer about honoring the memory of George Floyd. That's knuckleheads and anarchists who have infiltrated the peaceful movements for change to create chaos. And that's got to stop. Nobody wants to see brute force being used. But when you don't have a respect for authority and people are completely out of control, what are we going to do? It's bad. It's a bad situation all the way around. But Donald Trump has been stoking these flames from the people's house, from the White House, rage tweeting like a bitch from his bunker because he's completely unfit and incapable of being a leader. And the country is literally being pulled apart. And I am just so freaking, oh, I'm fired up about it. I'm also exhausted. Like you might hear that in my voice. Like I'm, I'm exhausted from just trying to process everything that's been going on. And the fact that that Donald Trump actually ordered his ordered um, law enforcement to pretty violently clear out peaceful protesters in front of the White House in Lafayette Square during the day before the curfew. They moved in, tear gas, rubber bullets, flashbang, all of those things to move. Peaceful, peaceful protesters out of Lafayette Park. And the heavy handedness was not necessary at that point. They weren't the looters and rioters. Sometimes then, then, then a heavy hand is more justified to maintain order when it's, you can't have anarchy, but not when it's peaceful protesters. That's a quintessential American thing, especially protesting in front of the White House. It's one of the things that makes our country great. That's what makes our country great. Those types of freedoms. But Donald Trump doesn't see that. His MAGA deplorables don't see that. They're freaking authoritarians. They're wannabe authoritarians. And he unleashed the heavy hand of our law enforcement and military personnel to clear the way so he could have a fucking photo op in front of St. John's Church across Lafayette Park. So he could walk over there and get a photo op. 
What a disgusting, despicable, evil, I don't even know the words, charlatan, wannabe authoritarian. I mean, that scene was one of the most upsetting things that I've seen in my entire life in politics. That he would do something like this and that there are people who support it. What an abuse of power. Imagine if Barack Obama behaved that way. If Barack Obama decided that he was going to uh, invoke the Insurrection Act of 1807, for God's sakes. I remember people were worrying about we're going to become Russia and, and, you know, he wants to declare martial law so he can take everybody's guns away and all this hysteria over Barack Obama's presidency. I remember because I was there. I remember those arguments. And you know what? It was alarmist. Did the Obama presidency do things I didn't like? And were there some hintings of imperial overreach? Yes, there were. But nothing compared to what we're dealing with now. We are almost in a full-blown constitutional crisis in this country. And there's still five months to go to get this bastard out of the White House. I, I, it, you know, it's, it goes against my natural being to be so, to speak this way about the office of the presidency, but I can't help it. I cannot help it anymore. I'm fed up. I've been fed up, but I've never been more motivated to do whatever we can to get this bastard out of the White House. Our country, our lives depend on it. Let's not forget, we're still in the middle of a freaking pandemic. Over 105,000 people, Americans die from COVID-19. And it's not going away. All these protests and all that, people, a lot of people are masked, which is good, I guess. You know, in some ways, bad in others, right? <laughs> How convenient, right? People run around breaking shit with masks on. For public health purposes, it's very ironic. But anyway, don't be surprised if we see another another uptick in, in cases. But our country is in total chaos, and this is just not sustainable. It's just not sustainable. I understand the righteous outrage. I really do. It's righteous anger. Things need to change. Tough conversations need to be had about race in this country. And Donald Trump is the most unqualified person to be in a position that he's in right now. He is not the leader that this country needs right now. Well, he's not a leader. I give Joe Biden credit for finally emerging from his basement. Not his fault. But he's had a string of some really good interviews where he has demonstrated his compassion, his experience. And... You know, he's gone out and talked to protesters and, you know, um, made himself available that way and told people, listen, I hear you. That's what we need. That is what we need. Because I tell you right now, I don't know how this ends. I really don't. But this is not sustainable. And I fear that bloodshed might end, might be a result of what's going on. I fear for, I do. I'm fearful of that. Because Trump supporters are crazy running around with their AR-15s and, you know, I'm all pro-Second Amendment, okay? We have guns in my household legally, but these people are nuts and trigger-happy. God knows what, they, what they're up to. 
And Trump is just continuing to stoke these 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 cultural and racial divides divides and division. He gets off on it. It's scary. When he did that photo op in front of the church, holding up the Bible, and then called over his freaking defense secretary and national security advisor and that twit Kayleigh McEnany, it was a disgusting display. Disgusting. Something out of some South American, you know, third-rate coup. It was awful. And all of these people, these enablers, they need to be held to account. All of them, the elected officials, those folks, vote them the hell out. I hope Republicans lose everything. Every one of those enablers need to pay a price. That, they're the reason why Donald Trump is so out of freaking control. He is who he is. He showed us who he was in the election. And I warned you. I warned you. And even I didn't think it would get quite this bad. But I knew it was going to be bad. And I wasn't joking when I said he was an existential threat to the Republic. And I'm not the only one. There are many of us. The Lincoln Project, I'm a senior advisor for. We just uh, put out a pretty searing ad called Flag of Treason. <laughs> and it talks about the Confederate, the use of the Confederate flag by Trump supporters and the fact that Donald Trump doesn't call these people out. He wants to designate Antifa a terrorist organization. Okay, well, whatever. Can't really do that because they're domestic terrorists. But what I mean, don't you know, Antifa is a problem. People try to make it seem like, oh, they're just no. They there's a violent streak in them too. But what about the white supremacists? What about them? They're out there trying to cause trouble. What about them? And Trump thinks that by invoking the Insurrection Act that he can just have military tanks rolling down U.S. cities. I've got news for you, buddy. You cannot do that. Governors have to give you permission. And I don't see too many governors itching to pull that trigger. No pun intended. Because military, it's a completely different skill set. It's like that movie, The Siege. If anybody's ever seen that movie with Denzel Washington, came out in 1999, pre-9-11, interestingly enough, about terrorist attacks in New York City, and the president declares martial law in Brooklyn. Bruce Willis is in it, and he plays a, a general, and they engage in some constitutionally questionable behavior under the guise of national security, and protection. It's such a good movie. It brings up a lot of questions about civil liberties and how far do we go to give up all those liberties for security. And this was pre-9-11. If you haven't seen it, you should watch it. It's good. But the, I see those scenes. I think his name was General Devereaux. Bruce Willis's character. And he warns. He's like, listen, I'm a card-carrying ACLU member. And nobody wants to protect civil liberties more than I do. But I'm telling you right now, you do not want military boots on U.S. soil in Brooklyn. Yeah. So the fact that Trump is all like, because, you know, these, these some of these protesters, these agitators are, are ruining it. They're out here. He's, it gives him that he get, it gets off on it. it, gives him the opportunity to be that, you know, that, that dictator that he wishes he could be. No good. No good at all. 
I mean, the governor of Massachusetts was damn near in tears talking about Trump's language during a phone call with governors where he's criticized them for not cracking down on the agitators, calling them weak, weak and fools, and how we need to, quote, dominate the streets. What kind of talk is that about American citizens? I don't care if they're acting up. Dominate the streets? Come on, what is this, fucking Venezuela? I mean, what, what, Cuba? Like, I don't get it. Well, I do get it. But I won't accept it. And neither should you. I want to bring in my guest this week. It's, um, I'm really happy to have him because Peter Wenner is a conservative intellectual who has served under three presidents. He was a George H., um, George W. Bush speechwriter. He's written many books. He's just a really introspective guy and intellectually honest. He's one of the few, <laughs> um, uh, conservative intellectuals who maintained his integrity and has been really critical of Republicans, of conservatives, and their hypocrisy, especially in the evangelical community. So I'm excited about him and our conversation. It's a really good one. And he has some thoughts about Donald Trump's character deficit and what that looks like. And also, why is it that it's so hard for Republicans to confront the issues of race? And... um I think it's a it's a it's a really good conversation. So next up, Peter Wenner. I'm so pleased to bring on someone who I have admired and followed for many years. He is uh, an amazing wordsmith and has some of the most eloquent thoughts on not only what's been going on recently in the in the era of Trump, but uh, overall in the in the body politic of conservatism. And uh, I felt like the context in which we're living in now, the words of Peter Wenner are so important. And I wanted to make sure that my listeners had a chance to hear from him if you're not already paying attention to him. Peter is the VP and senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He's worked for three presidents, uh, Reagan, Bush 41, George W. Bush. He was a speechwriter for George W. He ran the Office of Strategic Initiatives. He's written several books, including The Death of Politics, how to Heal Our Frayed Republic After Trump. And he also is a contributing writer to The Atlantic. And he's recently written a piece in The Atlantic about the malignant personality of of Donald Trump that I just felt was just kind of said, that's it. I got to get him. The malignant cruelty of Donald Trump is the piece in The Atlantic uh, written on May 26th. Peter Wenner, welcome to Honestly Speaking with Tara. I cannot wait to talk to you. Thanks, Sarah, so much for having me on. I'm really looking forward to the uh, to the conversation. Peter Wenner, we have watched some incredible displays of civil unrest, violence, anger. I would say righteous anger in the in some instances over the death of George Floyd in in Minnesota at the under the knee, suffocated under the knee of a white police officer, and it is really turned this country upside down. I think the country collectively has been horrified by that. And a lot of people have been awakened um, outside the black community to the problems with racial inequities in policing, in our criminal justice system, et cetera. And 
at a time like this, at a crisis like this, we really look to our leaders, our national leaders to speak to these things. And we have a president of the United States who is not only incapable of that, but is inflaming the racial tensions um, in ways that I don't think we have ever seen in the presidency in modern history, I guess, at least in the last 50 years. Uh, what are your thoughts on what's happened over the last couple of days and Trump's reaction to it? Yeah, I'd, um, I'd say a couple of things, uh, Tara. One is um, that, like so much of the nation, I'm grieved at what's happening, uh, and I'm deeply concerned um, and outright, outraged by, by what we saw in that video um, and the death of George Floyd uh, and the brutality and the inhumanity uh, of, uh, of it all. Uh, and it was impossible to, to escape the racial component of this. Um, and I think part of the reason that that this uh, country is 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 reacting that the way it is the way it is is that this is just the, the latest link in a long and ugly chain uh, in which uh, particularly uh, black men have been um, the uh, subjects of the, of attacks um, and and death uh, unarmed blacks um, at the um, at the hands of, of white police officers that doesn't mean by any means that most Police officers are racist. Most of them are courageous in doing um, a, a, a heroic job to keep the the, the country safe. Um, but uh, but this is too systemic. It happens too often, and we have to take a look at that. Um, so it's it's just a, a difficult moment in a in, in in a difficult year for for, for the uh, for the for the country. And I have the feeling that we're we're, we're coming apart. That we're fracturing. Uh, in terms of, of the president, um, he is handling the situation like he handles most situations, which is uh, terribly and in exactly the wrong way. I think the word that he is, uh, that he's inflaming the situation is exactly the one that uh, that I would use. Um, and he, he's uh, recently had a conversation with uh, the nation's governors, a conference call, and he described them as as weak. And if they didn't confront the protesters, they look like fools and that you have to dominate. Uh, and, uh, and he's going to call in the military. And if you don't do what, what, uh, what he's recommending, you're going to look like a bunch of jerks. And the thing that's striking in that is it's uh, as if he's living in a sick, violent fantasy. He yes. talked to the governor um, about their own people, um, his own fellow citizens, as if they were enemy soldiers. And this, again, goes to um, something that a lot of us warned about even before he became president, which is this is a man who is psychologically and emotionally unwell. Um, he is uh, he takes a psychic delight in, in dividing uh, people and turning them against each other. And he's always, always, always in search of an enemy. And what the country needs right now, uh, above all, is a voice of healing and unity and reconciliation and grace. And it's not only that, that those qualities are beyond him, it's that he embodies the opposite of those things. And it is as if this awful, terrible year of 2020 and this alignment of crises, the constellation of crises, is revealing Donald Trump for who he is and showing that all of his instincts are the wrong ones. Um, and so uh, he's mishandling this as he has other things, but I think there's a higher cost now than there has before. And it's it's happening um, not not in an isolated fashion, but part of 
of a broader uh, downward trajectory of the nation. The United States uh, is sick. Uh, its economy is contracting. Um, and the streets are now aflame, and there's violence uh, that's spreading across our countries. And Donald Trump is exactly the kind of person that you would not want as leader of a nation at a time like this. But he's what we have, and the people who gave us Donald Trump have to own Donald Trump, ultimately. Mm-hmm. In the name of accountability, in the name of responsibility, I'm very eager now to hear the people who praise Donald Trump who said that it was fine to have this wrecking ball take apart our institutions. He said, let's roll the dice on this man, who said morality and character really don't matter. Let's set that aside, who thought it was okay to uh, to first nominate and then elect a reality uh, television personality who we knew was a pathological liar and who was deeply distorted. And they thought, oh, let's let's give it a try. Well done. Uh, you, we, we are giving it a try. And this uh, awful, ugly year uh, is is uh, is some of the results of that. In saying that, it, I don't lay all of the blame for these things, particularly the COVID-19 uh, at the feet of Trump. Any president would have faced a difficult situation, but he's made everything worse, mm-hmm. much worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and and I, I do think uh, ultimately that the, the, the people who uh, who celebrated him, who championed him. Um, now have to take ownership for him and and what he's doing to 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 the country we love. Absolutely. Um, as you may know, I am a senior advisor for the Lincoln Project, and we just released an ad called "Flag of Treason" about the people who celebrate and hoist the Confederate flag under the guise of MAGA hats and Trump rallies, and and how this is emerged again as somehow. Uh, um, a symbol of triumph with Trump in, in office. And we are making those people and showing America, you have to choose. Do you want to choose that America, Trump's America, or do you want to choose the America that we've, that we all know and love, which is inclusive, which is about, you know, treating people equally and inalienable God-given rights in this country. I, it's, um, we're, we're sick and tired of letting these enablers get away with not being held responsible for what they've unleashed on us by giving rise to Donald Trump and giving him power. So, uh, I agree with you on that part. Um, I want to ask you a quick question about the, the racial component of this. Why do you think it's so difficult for the Republican Party and conservatives to acknowledge the ugly racial history of this country and the impacts that it still has today. I just find that there has been a certain amount of tone deafness within the party for years and years about confronting these issues. And the chickens are really coming home to roost now. Why do you think it's so hard? You would think that the, the, the idea of racial equality um, would fit in with our conservative values of empowering individuals. Why? Why, why, do, you, why do you think it's so hard? It's a good question. I imagine part of it is um, that it's hard to look at a nation you love like it is to look at an individual you love and see um, some very um, – some, some very ugly sides uh, to, to that to that nation or to that that individual, um, and so there may be just an, a, a normal human reflex for a lot of people 
to look away to sort of check the box or to try and say, well, this was a problem in the past, um, but that it's been over overcome. Um, look, racism and slavery was America's original sin. Um, it's certainly not as bad as it was right. in the past. Sure. We've made progress. Everybody needs to recognize that. But I think uh, on the right, I think it's a fair critique to say that um, that this situation, um, I, I think it's, it's, it's fair to say that uh, on the American right, too often uh, people have assumed that um, because of the, the Civil Rights Acts in 64 and 65, which Barry Goldwater uh, opposed, um, but they passed and people thought, OK, well, that's done. We've passed the laws, legislation. Um, the repair has been done. Let's let's move on. But it's not that simple. It's not that easy. The remnants of this. There's there's uh, there's there's a legacy of uh, of this. Look, uh, some of it is undoubtedly um, political as as well. The uh, Democratic Party's base of support, at least in part, used to be the South and the Deep South, and that shifted in the 1960s. And right now, the region in the country that um, is most strongly and loyally Republican is is the South. And the, the South has made a lot of progress, and people in the South have made a lot of progress over the years. But there is still undoubtedly uh, a remnant there of of, uh, of racism and at least insensitivity to racial matters that exists. And I think the Republican Party has understood that and and has uh, and has has played up uh, played played up to that. Um, but look, in the end, reality is reality, right? Uh, and you you can you can pretend it doesn't exist. You can try and avoid it. You can try and ignore it. But the reality doesn't doesn't go away. And this issue hasn't gone away. And we have to find a way as a country uh, to come to grips with our past, not to be trapped by it, and how to move forward. But we have to move forward in a way that that is uh, that is honest. Uh, and and honesty begins with taking account for what happened and why it happened and the problems that still still uh, still exist. Would you say that the remnants of the Southern strategy are rearing their ugly head again as Trump seems to um, welcome that playbook uh, as we see his campaign unfold and we see the way that the, they he seems to thrive with the cultural divide and lighting the match. Um, do you think that there has to be a, a reckoning of that Southern strategy? And do you think, if anything, if he's deploying it again, which I seem to think it's a modern day Southern strategy, uh, do you think that what's happening with the unrest in the streets, because it's gone from now um, honoring and peaceful protest of George Floyd's killing to this anarchy, which is out of control and, um, you know, cannot be tolerated either. Do you see this turning into an, a political advantage for Trump the way that Nixon did with his law and order strategy and campaigning back in the 60s? Yeah, let me disaggregate those questions. I don't think there's any question that the, that the worst elements of the so-called Southern strategy, which, which Nixon employed, um, is rearing its ugly head um, again. Um, like Donald Trump's entire presidency has been based on inflaming racial tensions um, in 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 all sorts of ways, uh, uh, subtle and not subtle. And um, so we know what he is and who he is and what he'll do. And he has made a calculation that uh, that it's in his political interest uh, to try and provoke his his base. 
on racial matters. And unfortunately, some element of his base responds to it favorably. Not all elements of his base, certainly not all Republicans uh, are, are racist or or uh, respond to racial uh, and race-laced appeals. But there are enough people out there that do that it's that it's uh, that it's problematic. In terms of the second part of your question, uh, look the the unrest that's that's gone out from 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 peaceful protest to violence to anarchy is really really troubling um, for all sorts of reasons. It's the opposite of justice. It's taking attention away from where it should be, which is what was done to George Floyd and why it was done. Um, the a lot of innocent people uh, are being hurt. Some lives are being lost. Property is being damaged. It's mindless violence. It's senseless violence, um, and it needs to uh, and it needs to stop. Will it help uh, Donald Trump uh, in terms of his political uh, chances in in 2020? I think it's it's hard hard to say. I'd say there are two things that are going on at once. On the one hand. There may be this instinct for uh, uh, law and order to, to restore peace in our streets, and that is certainly what Trump is 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 playing on right uh, right now. And a lot of innocent uh, and a lot, lot of people in the country who are perfectly good and decent people are, are watching this unfold, and they're horrified by it. They're saying mm-hmm. this has got to stop. You you can't allow your streets to burn. You can't allow violence to go unchecked and and unchallenged. I'd say on the flip side. This this is um, you know another uh, another eddy another current into a larger river of chaos and division and anger um, and so you've got a whole series of things that have come come together this this year you've got the pandemic and 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 this country which is which is sick and and growing sicker you have this contracting economy depression level. Unemployment rates, and now on top of that, you you have the violence in the streets, and all of that is creating a sense of deep unsettlement and concern. Um, and l- when that happens on your watch as a president, uh, you're held responsible, uh, whether you uh, are or not. I would say, in large part, Donald Trump is responsible for those things. But the last thing I'd say on this is, there is a way that that a more skilled uh, and nuanced and sophisticated politician cynical politician could take advantage of this moment. I think that Trump uh, is so brazen and so uh, blunt and so bullying and so crude and cruel in his in his responses that uh, it probably is not going to work. Um, I think people are going to think their impulse is going to be, look, this is not the guy that we need to try and calm the situation down. I think people want in their leader someone who is strong who will impose lawful order where where it's needed, but can also give voice to the pain and the grievance and the suffering. Uh, That's not always easy to do, but it can be done, and other people have done it. Trump can't do that. All he can do is target an enemy, divide the country more, and as that happens, the violence may well grow. I hope not, but it might. And again, this this may all feed into a sense of, of a country that's fracturing, that's coming apart, and the feeling among voters of being terribly unsettled um, may may be enough to, uh, to 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 say, look, let's let's give Joe Biden a, a chance. We can't do much worse than this. 
Right. Um, David Brooks in the New York Times said that the humanities are in crisis at the exact moment history is revealing how vital moral foundation really is. And I think that um, I'm hoping that our better angels are able to take over because I really don't want to see this end in bloodshed. And I lie awake at night worrying that that kind of confrontation may occur before Donald Trump is out of office. So, yeah, I, I do, too. And I just say that if those better angels do emerge and prevail, it'll be in spite of the president, not because of him. And that's a terrible thing to uh, to say. He's, he's created an enormous hurdle to uh, to overcome. These issues would be hard enough if we had um, the right person as president uh, to have exactly the wrong person as president at, at a time like this means that the challenge is, uh, is, is even greater than it would otherwise be. So, Peter, um, you've been referred to by some as the conscience of the conservative movement. And I think that that is an appropriate uh, description of you because you you certainly bring not only strong conservative convictions, but you also bring a strong faith uh, to everything that you do and you write and the perspective that you bring. And I think that the, the combination of those two things, when you talk about what's happening here with Trump, not just currently with the way he's mishandled coronavirus and um, the state of the party today, but just overall in general, that's that's been your worldview. In your piece, you wrote, there is a wickedness in our president that long ago corrupted him. It's corrupted his party and it's in the process of corrupting our country too. He is a crimson stain on American decency. He needs to go. What was yeah, the motivation I- for that? Well, the motivation of it was, um, you know, part of it was specific and part of it is part of a long arc of of the Trump presidency and really the the Trump um, man himself. Um, The the, uh, thing that catalyzed this particular article was this um, vile and baseless charge of murder against uh, Joe Scarborough, who's former Republican congressman, who's now co-host of uh, Morning Joe on MSNBC. Make a long story short, uh, Scarborough is a fierce critic of the president. And so the president has uh, been um, on Twitter um, pushing a insane conspiracy theory that uh, this woman was murdered. Uh, it was a 28-year-old. Uh, uh, I think she was an intern in Scarborough's office. And the autopsy report shows that she had a um, heart condition that people didn't know about. She fainted, hit her head on a desk. And and died, and that's that. There's there's not a thimble of evidence that there was any wrongdoing, but because uh, Scarborough is a critic of Trump, and because Trump has a disordered personality, uh, the president has gone after Scarborough and on this particular issue. And what really moved me to write this column was a letter um, that the uh, widower um, of this this woman uh, had written the CEO of Twitter, asking that. Uh, those tweets be taken down because it was so painful to him and uh, this woman's family to have to relive this murder and uh, the uh, effort to tar- tarnish um, her reputation in the process. Uh, to tell you the truth, I was not going to write on this issue um, because I, I, I go back and forth with how much attention right. one should give 
uh, to to uh, to Trump's uh, attacks, and some of it is that he wants us to be a shiny object and to distract us from the COVID-19, and some of it is the idea that we can't perennially be outraged by what he does um, and tr- trying to balance that out. But I must say, when somebody sent me that letter, um, I went from inclined not to write about this episode, and I said I've really got to to do it because it moved me, and it seemed to me to symbolize – something larger about Donald Trump, which is this uh, cruelty that is fundamental to his character. Um, It it isn't simply that he's a fighter like his defenders and the Republican Party like to say. It's that he seems to take a kind of psychic delight in inflicting pain upon other people, including innocent people like uh, this woman's family um, and um, and her and her husband. And it's happened again and again and again. And I think it's deeply corrosive um, to the Republican Party um, and to the country and to the concept of um, of decency. Um, and I just think that that stuff needs to be to be called out. Uh, I know that there, there are critics of mine that think that this is a broken record and that I talk about this too much. But my view is that there is a danger that you normalize this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. That, uh, that that we decide, look, this this is Trump being Trump. We just have to get used to it. And I understand that impulse. As I said, I, I, there's a danger to be caught up in a perennial state of outrage and letting Trump live live within your your head rent free, as they say. But on the other hand, uh, norms are important and they can be dissolved. Um, eat more easily and more quickly than we think. And so sometimes norms have to be defended. And that's basically what I was trying to do with my piece. Uh, That's absolutely right. Many of us who have opposed Donald Trump from day one have often said that we cannot normalize any of what's going on. But yet we've seen that happen repeatedly, where Republicans and people who um, used to be the moral compass of the party have completely compromised themselves. And uh, and it's disheartening to see. I mean, I, every day I just scratch my head and go, are you people serious with what you're rationalizing here? I mean, the fact that we have a president of the United States who is rage tweeting um, false accusations of murder against a political opponent, um, someone he doesn't agree with in the media because he's account you know, holds him accountable is just insane in the middle of a pandemic where a hundred thousand plus Americans and counting are dying uh partially it because of Trump's ineptitude and and just absolute lack uh well you you called it from the beginning you you worried about his temperament and how um unfit he would be based off of his behavior early on but this is what's going on and yet so many Republicans continue to support him or stay silent. Has any of this, have you reached a point where you just think that there is no return for for these Republicans? Yeah, I'm, I, I am pessimistic. Um, I mean, I, I see a couple of things in response. This is a very good question. Um, I don't know if, if we're beyond the point of return or, or not. I think what, we, what has to happen is we've got to get rid of Trump and then we'll see if we can get rid of Trumpism. And then th- that we'll see if the Republican Party can rebuild itself. Um, it's, in a, it's in a deep hole right now. 
and it's done tremendous uh, damage, um, self-harm to itself um, by this fealty to 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 a person um, who acts in in really wicked ways at um, at times. So I don't I don't know about the prospects for the Republican Party going going forward. I, I do believe that if it has any chance of moral and even political recovery, it's going to require repudiation of Trump and Trumpism. And I hope that happens in November, starts happening in November and goes beyond that. But um, but we'll see. Uh, and these forces that gave rise to Donald Trump aren't going to disappear, even if he if he uh, if he wanders off the stage, if, if he's if he's beaten, he certainly isn't going to go anywhere. And these the, the rage and the grievance and the resentments, some of the racial racial uh, sympathies, racist sympathies that, that are coursing through the Republican Party right now um, aren't going to disappear um, uh, either. I, I do think in the here and the now, um, the, the thing that's been so dispiriting, but frankly not surprising to me, is how the Republican Party at the national level has reacted to Trump. This was always a worry that I had even before he became president. Mm-hmm. One of the arguments that I made against him is that um, Hillary Clinton could hurt the conservative cause, but she couldn't redefine conservatism or she couldn't redefine the Republican Party like Trump could. An outsider can't do that for an opposition party in the way that that its nominee, and in this case its president, can. And that's exactly what happened. The Republicans threw their hat over the Trump wall a long time ago, um, and they basically said, he's our president, um, he's the face of our party, we have to stick with him. I think a lot of them didn't think he would uh, be as bad or malicious as he was, but they should have. I think there was a lot of self-delusion and willful self-delusion that was going on. They thought he would grow in office, that he could be contained and controlled by advisors, that the office itself would somehow elevate him. That was never going to happen because this is a man with a disordered personality who is psychologically not well. And, um, you know, I I exchanged notes with my uh, editor at The New York Times um, years ago about Trump. And I said to him, uh, when there's no bottom, there's no bottom. And I just think with Donald Trump, there's no bottom. There's nothing that he won't do, no line he won't cross. And when psychologically and politically the Republican Party decided we've got to defend him no matter what, this is where it eventually leads. And and it'll get worse between now and November. You and my friend George Conway share that uh, same um, concern uh, about Donald Trump and that same opinion of him having a disordered personality, that he is not well. George has made it a, a hobby of his, a part-time hobby to study what malignant narcissism is and the personality disorders that that Trump seems to display on a daily basis. And you wrote a piece, Trump is not well, back in 2019 in September. Uh, you've repeatedly said this, and I, and I just think that you don't have to be a psychologist or a psychiatrist to see that there's something clearly not right with someone yeah. that behaves the way Donald Trump does, his clear lack of empathy, the fact that he, um, I, I mean, the list is is long. We, we see it every single day. Yet you have an overwhelming majority of evangelicals who rationalize the moral deficits of Donald Trump on a daily basis to the point where I, you know, I grew up as a born again Christian. Um, I go to a non-denominational church. 
I don't want to step foot near any of these evangelicals anymore because I'm so disgusted with the hypocrisy. And I know that you have been very outspoken about that and pointing out this uh, this hypocrisy coming from the evangelicals, because I think that they are propping up Donald Trump. They, I mean, the evangelicals used to be the, the the conscience of the of the conservative movement. That's out the window. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's right. And your views and and feelings is re- really uh, are are uh, identical to to mine. I think that's been uh, I must say the most personally um, disappointing and painful uh, thing about this whole Trump era, um, because I'm a person of the Christian faith and have been part of the evangelical churches for much of my adult life. Um, and, and I understood the problems with it, and, and I wrote books back in the early 2000s, co-authored with with, with my friend Mike Gerson. Um, it was a book called "The City of Man: Religion and Politics in a New Era." And you know, we went through the history of of, of the intersection of faith and politics, and 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 there 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 are disturbing moments uh, in in that history, and we're aware of that. And people of the Christian faith stumble and fall like others. So, you know, you don't want to set up perfection as, 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 as the price of, of, of confidence uh, or perfection as, as, uh, as the standard that we have to meet. Having said that, uh, to see this happen is, is, is troubling on a number of, of, of levels. The first is, as you mentioned, the sheer rank hypocrisy of the whole thing. I mean, I'm, I'm old enough to remember the late 1990s when Bill Clinton was president. There was the Lewinsky scandal, mm-hmm. and it was the white evangelicals that basically on a daily basis took a moral two-by-four upside the head of Bill Clinton and talked about how important integrity uh, and, and, and moral character was in a, in a president. Um, and then uh, you fast forward to the here and the now with Donald Trump, and all of a sudden those arguments are thrown out. All of a sudden you hear references to, uh, you know, King David uh, was, was, was a moral failure and uh, that we ought to believe in grace and we ought to believe in forgiveness. I actually assisted someone who, who did, a, did a book uh, in the late 90s, and so I was extremely familiar with the arguments that were uh, made by the people defending Bill Clinton against uh, the criticisms of his moral failures. And those are being repeated almost verbatim now by white evangelical supporters of, of Donald Trump. So, you know, they, they believe morality counted when a liberal Democrat was president, but now that a Republican is president, they've decided it doesn't. And the world sees that. And they say, look, this is just, this is just a hypocrisy. This is a power game. We're not going uh, we're not going along with it. So I think it's done huge damage to the Christian witness, to the Christian faith. Um, and and I've experienced this, and you may, may have too, but there are a lot of particularly young people who wouldn't get within a country mile of, 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 a, of an evangelical church right? Um, because they feel like people like Franklin Graham Jr., uh, Eric Metaxas, Robert Jeffress, Mike Huckabee, uh, Ralph Reed, Jerry Falwell Jr. represent um, Christianity. Now, you and I both know that that's not true, and there, I'm sure there are people in your life, there certainly are in my life, um, real uh, people of integrity and, 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 and thoughtfulness and care who have walked the journey of life and of faith with me. But that's being obscured right now. Um, and, and I'll say this, too. It's not simply that Trump's white evangelical supporters, and this is not all of them, but but enough of them to be problematic. It's not just that they've gone sort of voce, that they've gone quiet in the face of his moral indecency, his his ethical transgressions. 
it's that they defend him. He's their sword right. and their shield. Right. And they twist themselves into uh, these these theological uh, knots to try and, and, and defend the indefensible. And that's just really discouraging. Um, and, uh, and you know, it, it says that a lot has gone wrong. I, if you would have asked me at the beginning of my, of my Christian journey, which is really sort of high school, beginning of college, um, and said, look, by the time you get to 2020, I would have thought, quite honestly, that I would have come across a lot more transformed lives than I have when it comes to, to people of the Christian faith. And what I thought would happen more than has happened is that faith would be um, the prism through which people would think through their politics and all aspects of their life, that that would really be the thing that would that at least in people would imperfectly try to define them. But I think what's happened, certainly in this case, is that faith is subordinate to, to political tribalism, that, that these people are going in, they feel like Trump is on our side, our tribe has to win, and we're going to defend him again no matter what. And to watch that play out um, as a person of the Christian faith is, has just been hard. Uh, it has been. I've I've actually lost, for me personally, I've lost friends who have known me uh, most of my adult life or since I was a teenager who were very supportive of me in my political career until I began pointing out the inconsistencies and hypocrisy of supporting Donald Trump within the Christian church. And not only did they disagree with me, they became very rabid and insulting and very unchristian-like very quickly. Um, and I'm talking pastors' wives, okay? Not just regular parishioners, people who really should know better. And I was just horrified by that and brokenhearted. It was it was heartbreaking to watch this. And I, I said, you know, what is going on in, in our country that so many people who should know better have fallen prey to this? And, you know, you, you wrote in your book... In the death of politics, you talked about how even in the in the early 90s that you were really concerned about culture and how the cultural decay in this country was uh, something to be concerned about. And you said that culture is upstream from politics and that if culture is decayed, politics can't hope to repair the damage. Do you still feel that that's kind of what has led to this? Do you think it's a cultural issue? Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I, I still think that that's that's correct. I mean, I think it's a it's a complicated synergy. I think politics and culture um, interact with each other and 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 shape the country that we're in. And and I think often culture is upstream of politics. I think sometimes politics is upstream of culture too. So, for example, during the civil rights uh, debate, laws uh, which were which were implemented through, through political mechanisms, I think began to shape in a, in a, in, in the right way, cultural attitudes and social attitudes. But as a general matter, I think that the culture set the context in which, in which politics, uh, happens in terms of this moment and, and explaining what, what's behind it. Um, I do think that, that this sense of political tribalism, hyper-partisanship, hyper-polarization, um, has, is, is the field that we're on. Um, and I just think that we can't emphasize that enough. Somebody who's helped my thinking probably, well, in some respects, more than anybody else in the last uh, decade or so is 
Jonathan Haidt, who's a professor at uh, NYU. He's a social psychologist, used to be at University of Virginia, wrote a wonderful book called The Righteous Mind. Um, and it's about why good people uh, disagree so uh, deeply and passionately on religion and politics. Um, and it really goes, I think, to, to, to human psychology. Uh, and I think it's, it's part of the evolutionary legacy that, 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 that we have. But it's this notion that when you are part of, of, of a tribe, of a certain community, um, if you feel like that that tribe is under attack, that can catalyze a whole series of, of pernicious uh, tendencies and pernicious reactions in people. And part of it is um, that it binds you to the people in your own tribe to the point that you are blind to, to their, their own failures, their own shortcomings. But it also creates a deep antipathy toward people in the other tribe. Um, and it, and what you do is it gets you into a situation of a kind of manichae and, you know, we're the children of light, they're the children of darkness. Mm-hmm. And in my experience, and I, you may have experienced this too when you're in, in these conversations you had, and I'm, I'm sorry for the, for the personal pain that you had to go through in terms of being the target of, of the abuse, um, which, which is painful and I guess probably symbolizes in a way what, what a low moment this, this is. But in my exchanges and conversations with people who are pro-Trump um, and let's say pro-Trump evangelicals, and I've had a lot of them, they have convinced themselves that this is an existential battle that they're in and that if Donald Trump loses, that the Supreme Court goes the wrong way, that the House or the Senate goes Democrat rather than Republican, they view that not just as a political loss. They think that it will lead – to the destruction of so much of what they love and care for. It's the kind of Flight 93 mentality that Mm -hmm. that was written about during the 2016 election. And when that happens, if you're dealing with people who feel like they are in an existential battle, um, then a lot of bad things can can happen. I think that that critique, while I understand elements of it, is wildly overstated and melodramatic. Um, and and let, just to take one very specific issue, which a lot of evangelical supporters care a great deal about, abortions. If, I've written articles on this in the New York Times and elsewhere, actually. But if you look at the number of abortions, rate and ratio of abortions, um, take the two terms of Bill Clinton and the two terms of Barack Obama. The number of abortions dropped 15 out of 16 years when they were president. Um, and we are now in 2020 uh, at the lowest number of abortions since Roe v. Wade in 1973. Now, I'm not going to credit Bill Clinton and Barack Obama necessarily for dropping the number of abortions. I think it's a complicated set of factors. But my point is that the simplistic connect the dots that says if you get a Democrat as a president, uh, you know, the number of abortions is going to skyrocket and uh, America is going to fall apart morally. That's just the record doesn't show that. But that doesn't really penetrate with them. They have created this narrative in which these are, are dark forces that are against them. Those forces want to destroy them. And so they have to be defeated. And if it requires supporting Donald Trump in the process, that's fine. And beyond that, and what's even more disturbing than that, so for some of these people, again, not all of them, but for for more than, than there should be, I think that they take a kind of satisfaction 
in how Trump fights. I think that the the maliciousness of of his tactics is something that resonates with them because they feel like, with some justification, that they've been patronized and condescended by the elite culture for a lot of years. And they view Trump as their way to pay back uh, the 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 the, the uh, Democrats and and liberals, and so when Trump attacks them in ways that really ought to cause them to react with revulsion, I think they kind of delight in that, uh, and and that too is a very sad tale. And that therein lies the problem. It's that the you know I understand the flock will sometimes do what they do. But that's where the pastors and the leaders in the movement are supposed to come in and say, whoa, wait a minute. You know, that's that is not consistent with what Jesus's teachings are. It's not consistent with the Gospels and it shouldn't be consistent with anything that they're teaching in their churches. I question what the heck these guys are teaching, you know, preaching from the pulpit. If this is how their congregations are are behaving when they see the um, the behavior of Donald Trump and how he does it. And comparing him to Cyrus, this idea that he's a Cyrus is, I'm just like, oh my gosh, it just goes further to the rationalization. And like you said, they think that this is an existential battle and nothing else matters. It it has, it's, it's, um, it's alarming because it it leads to a very cult like behavior and, and group think that has not ended well in history in the past. Yeah. Oh, I, I I completely agree. I think it's not only that it's it's not a not a Christian ethic that, that Trump represents. It's a kind of Nietzschean ethic. It's this right. notion of the will to power that might makes right, um, and to to so thoroughly embrace and celebrate a person like this. You know, you would think that the the, the credo of the Sermon on the Mount was "Blessed are the brutal, for they shall inherit the earth." That's not how it goes. <laughs> right. not, that's not what Jesus said. I'll tell you, I've had conversations with, with, with pastors and theologians, you know, close friends of mine, and um, and I, I should say that I, I understand – well, let me say a couple of things that I understand. First, I understand the argument of evangelicals who voted for Trump over Hillary Clinton in 2016, and I, I know their argument um, because I've had these conversations, and I don't begrudge them this. I disagreed with them, and I don't begrudge them, but the argument is essentially, look, Donald Trump's policies are – or will do more to advance uh, the moral good of the country than Hillary Clinton's will. Um, and so we will feel like we have to vote for him. Um, now, to do that, to do that reluctantly uh, and, and to do that uh, you know, sort of holding your nose, putting up with Trump's indecencies, that I, is a defensible position. Again, I don't agree with it, but I get it. Right. That's yeah. not what's happening in a lot of places. It's that they will not call him out. They can't seem to hold two concepts at the same time. And that is to say that we agree with his policies, but we're horrified by his 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 immorality, his ethical transgressions. That just doesn't seem to be what's happening for many of them. It's like we're 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 completely and we're we're uh, we're we're fully um, fully into um, into this. Um, but yeah, I, I think that what's what's happening here is is that they've they've linked themselves to to a person whose who, whose philosophy and whose actions are doing a tremendous amount to discredit their their Christian uh, their Christian witness because the world is watching and and they are familiar enough with what a biblical ethic ought to be uh, that they know that Donald Trump doesn't 
uh, doesn't represent it. Um, and uh, so it's it, it's a difficult moment. But I've had these conversations, <clears throat> as I was saying earlier, with pastors and theologians, and I've never been one who felt like, um, certainly from the pulpit, that pastors shouldn't preach politics uh, very often. I think that 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 sets things up in a dangerous way for all, for, for all sorts of reasons. But the issue that I've raised with these friends of mine is, look, right now there's a meta-narrative out there. Uh, and it may, you may not think it's, it's completely uh, accurate or fair, but that meta-narrative is that white evangelical supporters are enthusiastic defenders of Donald Trump and are hypocrites. And they won't call out his uh, his his moral transgressions under any circumstances at all. And this is doing tremendous generational damage mm-hmm. to the to the Christian church and the Christian witness. And I've heard this from pastors all across the country, um, particularly among younger uh, younger people, both people who are not of the Christian faith and people who are of the Christian faith. And so the question I posted my friends who are, who, who are influential within within the Christian world is, at what point is there a need for you to speak up publicly to try and create a counter-narrative? Because I understand these people privately don't agree with Trump, and they're privately horrified that, that, that the face of evangelicalism is Franklin Graham Jr. and Jeffress and Metaxas and Huckabee and Reed and Falwell Jr. But if you don't say anything, um, then that's the default position right now. Um, and so I, it could be that we're just in a different moment. Now, each pastor and theologian and person of the Christian faith has to figure out for themselves when and how to speak up or whether they should or whether their ministry should be um, not public but private in, in personal relationships and one-on-one. But but I do think that we're at a moment now where, where people have to entertain the possibility that folks of faith who in the past have not weighed in on politics might need to do so. Absolutely. What happened to being the light of the world? Uh, you know, how is anything that they're doing advancing the goal of saving souls, which is the question I think that, you know, you've challenged uh, the pastors and, and Christian leaders that you've talked to. How is this advancing the cause of what we're called to do? And I don't see that it is. Um you wrote, a, you wrote a piece called There's No Christian Case for Trump, which uh, I encourage folks to read in The Atlantic, uh, where you take on one of those Christian leaders who's a, a Christian ethicist, of, of all things, has written books about these Christian ethics and still justifies Donald Trump's and rationalizes Trump's behavior, um, much to your chagrin. Um, but you also, in a piece that you wrote in The Downfall of the Republican Party in February, you quote the former president of Czechoslovakia, uh, Václav Havel, and I thought that this was really poignant because a lot of people ask me, like, what the hell happened to so-and-so in the Republican Party? You know, what what happened to these people? And um, I often say that it's they're corrupted by power. Same thing with the with the evangelical leaders. I think that they've they've sacrificed their 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 calling and Christian responsibilities for political power. Um, but you quote Von Klev Havel from 1991, where he spoke about those who are starting to lose their battle with the temptations of power. He said, it's an insidious thing. He warned to become captive to the perks of power. Politicians soon learn how easy it is to justify staying in power, even as they give up bits of their soul in the process. It's, it is easier than they think to get morally tainted. I, I can't think of a better summation of what we're witnessing every day. 
Yeah, you know, Hobble is is a person I've gone back to, to quite a bit. Um, actually, in this in this time, there was that speech, um, which which as you said was in 1991, and Hobble became uh, president of the Czech Republic after the fall of the of the Soviet Empire. Uh, but there's another thing that he wrote actually in the late 1970s, and this is when he was a dissident, and it's called the Power of the Powerless. And I think it was written in 78 or 79. And it's a very um, moving essay uh, and, a, and, a, and a deeply moral and profound one. And um, he's, he, he, he has a line in there in which he talks about or formulation that he has where he talks about living within the lie and, versus living within the truth. Mm. And his setup is about the green grocers in Czechoslovakia at the time who were um, part of, of, you know, they lived under a, uh, an oppressive totalitarian regime. And they would put up signs uh, in, in, in uh, their businesses that uh, were lies on behalf of the regime itself. And they knew that those were, those were lies, but they decided to go along with it because they were fearful to stand up, as many people would be, to, to, the, to, the, to the state and the power of the state. But Hobble's meditation is what happens when you begin to live within a lie? What happens to, to, the, to, the, to the moral center of individual citizens when they perpetrate lies rather than, than denounce them? And how ultimately we're called to live within the truth rather than within a lie? And that you have to have the backbone to stand up um, to those lies mm-hmm. and to those who perpetrate those lies. And in the here and the now in the United States in 2020, um, our challenges aren't nearly what they were for the people of the Czechoslovakia in the late 70s. Uh, we don't live in a police state, and the cost to standing up to the lie is not nearly now what it was then. But I fear that that's what's happening for a lot of people. They've decided to live within this within this lie. And when you do that, that can have a really destructive effect, not only on people individually, but on, on, on the life of a country. Because democracy in the end has to believe uh, in, in truth and falsity, um, in reality and, 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 and unreality, and, and distinguish between those. Because if you can't agree on a common set of facts or a common reality, then, uh, then accommodation becomes impossible and the whole thing eventually falls, falls apart. Um, now, we're, we're not at that point uh, yet. Well, we're but, on the slippery slope, I think, Peter. I mean, look at the way Donald Trump attacks truth every day. I mean, we can't even agree yeah. on we can't even agree on a pandemic that's killing people um, and wearing masks to protect each other. Something that is demonstrably um, true. And he yet has turned this into a, uh, you know, some kind of conspiracy theory, which is why he traffics in these conspiracy theories all the time, constantly attacking the truth and constantly attacking uh, facts and and those who hold them accountable in order to allow people to keep living the lie, because that's his entire existence, right? Yeah. No, look there, I completely agree. Indeed, I I probably would go a little bit further in this in this respect. Um, I, I do agree that, that the trajectory of things right now is 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 worrisome, and I've written about this particular aspect of Trump 
probably as much as any, which is this assault on on truth. And let me explain what I mean. It's not simply that Trump is a liar, which is bad enough, but it's the nature of his lies. It is that he is waging an almost uh, nonstop uh, morning, noon, and night assault on the concept of truth. And let me illustrate what I mean. What was the first lie of the Trump presidency? Oh, it was the, the inauguration crowds. It was the inauguration crowd. And why Why was that significant? I've asked myself before, what's the big deal? He, he, he's he's, he's an, uh, a narcissist. He's going out to claim that, uh, that his crowd was larger than Barack Obama's crowd, doesn't have po- public policy implications. What's the big deal? I think the reason it was a big deal is that uh, both he and his defenders, Sean Spicer, Kellyanne Conway, and others – went out and perpetrated a lie that we knew was a demonstrable lie. That is, mm-hmm. we had photographic evidence that his crowd was smaller. We had Park Service numbers that showed it was smaller. There was His crowd was smaller. There was no objective way that you could believe that his crowd was larger than Barack Obama's. But that didn't stop him, and it didn't stop them. And so what they did is they went right at the heart of objective truth and basically said, are you going to believe me or your lying eyes? <laughs> and when you do that, when you go from simply telling lies to saying that truth itself is uh, is up for grabs, you know, Nietzsche had a term perspectivism by which he meant the truth is is um, Nietzsche was a complicated figure, but the short version is that it all depends on the perspective of the person. You can create your own script. You can create your own narrative. And that's what Trump does. And he does it virtually every day. And it's what his supporters do. And that's why I think it's 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 per- particularly pernicious what is what is happening and why the country has to has to respond to that. Exactly. And reject it, which is what people like you and others, uh, myself and others do at at every opportunity. Uh, We're blessed enough to have platforms where we're able to do that and encourage others who see what's happening and recognize that what's going on has has to be rejected. And, you know, we have to do that. Um, It's very Orwellian. Um, I often start my speeches and, and my podcast with a quote from Orwell about telling the truth in a un- time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. It feels yeah. like we're living in, in a revolution, um, you know, it, which as conservatives, you know, we start talking about revolution that <laughs> goes a little bit against our, our conservative nature there with that. But this kind of revolution, I think, is worth fighting for. Um I wanted to ask you, but before we uh, before we conclude, because I have a lot of uh, of conservative friends who appreciate the the political philosophy of conservatism that are just disgusted with the Republican Party and, and have rejected what the Republican Party has turned into. Um, but 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 they're still conservatives, and I consider myself one of those. I often caveat conversations with, "No, I'm a conservative first, because it is a worldview and way in which I live my life and brings perspective to my approach to things. Not only the way I live my life, but public policy. And in conservatism, good governance used to be one of the hallmarks of that. Um, but now it seems that the Republican Party, as you say in your book, they're bored with it, and they're it's about it's become about, about politics." of performance and theatrics with Trump. But as a conservative, lifelong, what do you say to people who look at this and say, this is conservatism? 
what Trump is doing, how this is this is this is your conservative party. How do you, yeah. what do you say to those folks? Yeah, what I say to them is that it is not conservatism. It's right wing populism. And actually, conservatism is antithetical to populism. Um, and what's happened is that Trump is head of the Republican Party. He's not the, the face of the conservative movement. And the Republican Party is no longer the home of conservatism um, r- right now. Uh, I understand why people think that, because they've really particularly since 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 Reagan's uh, election victory in 1980, the Republican Party and, and conservatism have conservatism have been twins. But that's no longer the case. And so then I think, you know, I try and explain what what conservatism means with some of the some of the tenets um, of it, both in policy, but also in in um, in philosophy. But in terms of the difference between right-wing populism and or, or left-wing populism and conservatism, you know, conservatism has historically been concerned uh, and, and worried about the passions of the people. That's why the founders created separation of powers, uh, and, uh, which, which was to, to, uh, to try and keep those popular. They didn't believe in direct democracy. Um, they wanted to cool the passions of the people, and, and most of the founders, and certainly, I would say Madison, first among among equals here, really w- were worried about uh, about that. So conservatism has always been worried about that, and it's all and it has also uh, always been very very wary um, about uh, revolutionary um, you know sentiments. Um, it believes in human experience, not in abstract ideology. Um, and there is a kind of conservative temperament, which I think is 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 essential to understand, which is the notion of epistemological modesty, uh, wariness of zealotry, um, a, a, a uh, uh, you know knowing that that uh, that this kind of idealism that sometimes characterizes the left can can spin off into all sorts of dangerous uh, directions. And there's a prudence um, and a wisdom that it, it, one associates with at least a, a Burkean kind of, of conservatism. Um, so, look, I think that, that that needs to be repaired, badly repaired um, in, in the moment after Trump. I don't think while he's president, much can be done on that front, because as president, um, Trump is defining the Republican Party. Um, I think it's helpful when there are people uh, like you and others who try and make the distinction between uh, conservatism and uh, and what's happening now. So they preserve that. It's 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 the reason you're a conservative. The reason I'm a conservative is because it has a wonderful pedigree and it has some deeply important insights into human life and human nature um, that that I think are worth worth preserving um, an appreciation for the complexity of human society, the limitation of politics, the, the dangers of mistaking politics for metaphysics and all of all of that. Um, but I think once Trump leaves the scene at whatever point he leaves the scene, then th- there will be a pretty intense debate about the future of the Republican Party and what conservatism means. And I really don't know how that's going to, to how to play itself out. I do believe that conservatism is, can't go back to what it once was. I was part of a group of so-called reform conservatives pre-Trump in 2014, 2015, who were worried that the, the Republican Party and the conservative movement had gotten stale. And had not really adjusted its its policies and its approach to the realities of American life today. They were kind of 
caught in a time war. As a friend of mine says, that, that a lot of conservatives felt like that every day was January 20th, 1981, when, <laughs> when Reagan was inaugurated. And the problems are different. And one of the one of the wonderful things about conservatism as a philosophy is that it is flexible. It does have this this belief that human experience and human life dictates how you approach things. And there's a certain flexibility that's inherent in that, even as it remains more to to uh, to, to to certain conservative uh, beliefs. But, but beyond that, I would Russell say Russell Kirk uh, talks about that often. Russell Kirk, yeah. and, you know, and it talks about prudence and also that we're not as conservatives against progress. Uh, you know, we're part part of what makes us conservatives is the ability to adapt to what's going on. It's just the way in which we do it is a bit different. <laughs> right. Prudence. No, that's, yeah, no, that's exactly right. It's it, conservatism is not antithetical to certainly to progress right. uh, or, or to change. It's just that the change has to be prudential and right. responsible. And Russell Kirk is, is, a, is a terrific person to read. And and Kirk was an interpreter of a certain kind. He was a, he was a person with a certain agrarian view of, of, of life. But he he's worth reading in order to understand some aspects of Edmund Burke, who's mm-hmm. who's, who's really one of the key figures in in the intellectual life of conservatism. He was an 18th century figure um, across the pond, as, as they uh, as they say. I do think that if conservatism is going to make a comeback. Uh, post-Trump, part of what has to happen is that we have to attach that philosophy to to to, to human lives in a very concrete and practical way. Um, I think sometimes these debates can get a little abstract, and ultimately what you have to do when you're advancing a certain set of beliefs and political philosophy is to show why those beliefs and that philosophy will advance human flourishing and human mm-hmm. dignity. Yes, you have um, to make it relatable. It has to be relatable. Yeah, exactly. And it has to, there has to be something hopeful and appealing uh, to people. Uh, and you also have to be able to show what happens when when you depart from, from certain things that are fundamental to human nature. That isn't liberty. That can be a slavery of a kind, and it can it can lead to you. Know, p- people, I think, are uh, are, are uh, there are certain things that are intrinsic to human nature that we need to flourish as human beings. And politics is not the main arena in which that happens, uh, but it's one of them. And I think that what we have to do is to be able to to tell a story, to to create a narrative that touches the moral imagination. That's not just cognitive, but touches in a sense the aesthetics of people's lives, and gives them hope and convinces them that that this philosophy, this set of beliefs, is consistent with how human nature at its best is all about, and why your life as an individual and the life of a country will will, will be better and more noble um, because uh, be, because of this set of beliefs and I think that's been that's been lost that's a that's a big reconstruction project that has to occur it's not the only one but I do think it's essential and I hope it, it begins sooner rather than later you write an entire chapter in your book the death of politics about the case for hope and you've also uh, written co-written a book with one of my conservative modern day heroes Arthur Brooks 
um, who is someone I encourage people to follow, to read, because he really does have a one of the most optimistic and hopeful approaches to conservatism and human nature. Um, Sometimes when I lose faith in humanity, uh, Arthur Brooks brings me back. And um, and I think that uh, that's something that's that's just it's important because we're just surrounded by so many forces of darkness now that there, there is, there is light at the end of the tunnel. Um, before I let you go, uh, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. This is such a great conversation. And and I hope that we can soon return to times where we can have these conversations in person over, over, um, a nice single malt scotch or whatever your beverage (laughs) choice is. Um, you worked for three presidents and, uh, three presidents that I admire uh, do you have any uh, leave my listeners with a, a good anecdote or two, something a little bit more uplifting <laughs> um, from your experience working in the White House, either under Reagan, Bush one or or George W. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, right. I worked in the Reagan and George H.W. Bush administrations and, and the George W. Bush um, White House. Um, yeah, there's there's there are a couple of stories. Maybe one I'll I'll, I'll focus in on. With uh, with uh, President Bush, uh, George W. Bush, and I think Dana Perino has talked about this publicly. Um, but the short version is that Scott McClellan is was a press secretary for President Bush, and um, Scott um, ended up leaving the administration. Uh, he had been removed as press secretary, um, and he wrote a book, a kind of tell-all book, um, which was critical of the president, critical of the administration. And um, he worked in the communication shop, obviously, as, 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 a, as a press secretary, and Dana had worked with him. And when that book came out, um, she was really uh, deeply and understandably hurt by it. She felt it was a betrayal uh, by, by Scott. And President uh, Bush knew um, how upset she was and other people in the communications uh, department were. And he called, um, called her, I think he called her in. Um, and maybe others as well, and said, "Look, you know, I know you're upset at what uh, Scott is is uh, has done, and I and I understand that. Um, but uh, we don't know what's going on right now. Scott may be going through a hard time, and we need to uh, extend grace to him. And I don't want anyone to publicly criticize him or privately criticize him. Basically, he said, let's just let it go.' Um, and that was a very gracious um, act by a very gracious man. Uh, I, there was a time in which I think this was for a State of the Union address. It was in the family quarters. It was in the family theater when uh, going through the the um, rehearsal, and uh, the machine had gotten stuck. I think the the, the uh, some of the wrong speeches had gotten in there. Something was going awry, <laughs> and. President had got frustrated and kind of walked out in a huff, saying, "Look, when when you guys get this fixed, uh, just call me back." And he came back a few minutes later, and he apologized to the people, uh, particularly the person who was running the teleprompter practice, uh, and said, "Look, I'm sorry. A president should never talk to somebody that way." Wow. Um, and those are just two incidents—the kind of thing that uh, people weren't aware of. 
knew him, but they were very, they symbolized the kind of man that George W. Bush was. And honestly, uh, a number of, well, each of the presidents that I worked for, and again, two of them not directly because I was in the administration, but but Reagan and, and George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush were very decent and honorable people, not perfect, but 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 very impressive and kind, and they never used their power um, to hurt people. They they were very very um, cognizant of the power of a president and how you ought to treat people, particularly people over whom you have power. And I never witnessed or heard stories of them um, insulting or 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 or, or being uh, rude, uh, let alone cruel to people. One of the ways, honestly, that you can get to know the character of a president is by asking the permanent staff at the White House, the the, the cooks and, and the others that work there. And those three people were really, really well liked. That's um, true. Precisely because they were they were treated well. And Barack Obama, oh, from everything that I know about him, was was a was a very personally decent man. Um, his, his his family life is impressive. Uh, as a father, he has been. There's not been a hint of scandal that's been associated with him. I'm a Republican. He's a Democrat, so obviously I didn't work for him. But this is not something that is confined to one party or the other. Uh, and there have been, over the life of the presidency, there have been some, some people with bad character, but there have also been people with good character, and that makes a difference. And it also sets a, an ethos, uh, an ethic in a White House. Uh, you know, from the top down. Um, and that is something that is just so missing at this moment. And with Donald Trump, we have a person who's not only rude, uh, uh, but is is outright cruel, uh, to bring us back to, to the piece that I did in The Atlantic. And it's not only that he's that way, but those that work for him have been that way. And unfortunately, his party has to some extent become that way as well. Um, but let's hope that this is a parenthesis um, and that uh, we'll look back to this as an unfortunate and dark moment in the arc of, of American history and the American presidency, and then we'll learn from it. And maybe, um, which is the last thought, sometimes the light, uh, life of an individual, life of a nation, when certain qualities are stripped away, things that you had um, maybe uh, taken for granted. But when they are stripped away from, from an individual life or the life of a nation, you begin to understand why they mattered in the first place, why things like honesty and integrity and nobility and compassion and empathy uh, matter. And maybe we've forgotten why they do, and, and maybe one of the effects of the Trump era uh, silver linings of, of an otherwise dark time will be that we'll realize that those things actually matter and take them seriously and we'll elect people who embody those kind of things going forward. Amen, my friend. Well said, as always. Uh, Peter Wenner, the conscience of the conservative movement, um, an amazing writer, uh, unbelievable life experience, and someone that I think... Um, my listeners are now smarter and more um, just more in tune with what's going on to realize that there is there are people out there who are holding this mess, um, uh, you know, holding these folks in, in this mess accountable, including their enablers, and that 
I think the onus is on all of us to make sure that we that we continue to call it out. And um, as you say in your in your piece that Trump is a crimson stain on American decency and he needs to go. Peter, how can people find you on Twitter? Yeah, uh, Peter underscore Wayner. If you Google my name at Ethics and Public Policy Center, where I'm a senior fellow and vice president, uh, they have my writings. Um, I, I write for the New York Times and also the Atlantic. So any of those places, um, they, they can uh, they can find my uh, my work. And uh, and thanks for having me on, uh, Tara, and, and and for your work and, and and for being a voice of conscience. And um, and this too shall pass, as Lincoln said. And and it when it does. Um, certain people uh, will will deserve credit for having helped navigate this moment, and and, and you'll be among them. So so thanks for uh, for your uh, for your witness in a in a troubled time. Oh, thank you so much. You're too kind. And as Bill Buckley, one of my other conservative heroes, said, that is part of conservatism. It's our responsibility to yell stop athwart history, and I feel like that's what we're doing. So thank you, my friend, and um, keep up the great work. Thanks. It's been great uh, being with you. Take care. Again, a big thank you to Peter Wenner for his insightful and honest conversation. I could talk to him all day. Um, Thank God there are still some intellectually honest people on the right. So I always usually end the show with a feel-good story. And I think this is an appropriate way to end the, the episode today. I mentioned earlier that there were police officers who were actually out there walking with protesters, um, taking a knee with them in various cities, trying to de-escalate the situation and show some compassion. So one of the officers who whose video went viral was Sheriff Chris Swanson from Flint, Michigan. And he did an amazing interview with Don Lemon on CNN. And in his own words, he talks about why he did it, and the importance of being um, focusing on the community. So I'm going to play the, the interview. It's only a couple minutes, and I want people to take comfort in knowing that there are good law enforcement leaders out there leading by example. Police and protesters facing off nationwide, but there are also moments of people coming together. In Flint, Michigan, the sheriff put down his baton and listened to protesters. We want to be with y'all for real. So I took my helmet off and laid the batons down. Yeah. I want to make this a parade, yeah. not a protest. Yeah. Yeah. Got little ones here. You got dogs. So what's up? So listen, I'm just telling you, these cops love you. That cop over there hugs people. So you tell us what you need to do. That was Genesee County uh, Sheriff Chris Swanson, and he joins me now. Uh, Sheriff, I'm sorry, but our time is short, but for the breaking news, you understand what's happening on the streets uh, all over the country. Uh, You are being called an inspiration for how you worked uh, with that march and and just for peaceful, making things peaceful. What was going through your head in that moment? Well, I'm going to tell you, I couldn't do my part if I didn't have Johnny Franklin, Quan Adams, Jeff Hawkins, they were community leaders in that group that saw that I wanted to hear what they had to say, that we wanted to let them voice their opinion. That's what the frustration is. You need to let the people talk. And when those three brothers stepped up and I gave a big bear hug 
And I said, what do you need? They said, walk with us. And that's the change. you got to listen to the people and walk with them. It was a very, it's it's very different, Sheriff, if you let me jump in. It's very different of what we saw today, this sort of militaristic state uh, playing out in Washington and the president saying he's going to deploy uh, the military here in America to prevent violence. What's your reaction to that? Do you want that well, in your city? I, in Flint, Michigan, we had protesters. We had protesters who remembered the message of George Floyd, just like Mr. Crump said. That's the focus that we had that day. We have been blessed to have community leaders that saw the message, that acted, and it set the tone across the nation. My heart, my heart breaks for those cities. You know, you report on New York City uh, that we're being watched by the entire world, right. and we are one nation, one blood. And I'm going to tell you, it's it's the protesters who put that voice out that needs to be heard. We can't not lose that focus. There are calls all across the nation for police reform. I'm wondering what that change means because you mentioned the name George Floyd, Laquan McDaniel, yeah. both John, Alton Sterling, and on and on. What does that mean? What does reform mean to you? 100%. I mean, we have to be held to the highest standard. Law enforcement can, can stop calling wrongs right. We have to do the right thing. There should be no such thing as a bad cop because if they're bad, they shouldn't be the police. And we need to root those people out. And that means terminations. That means charges if they do wrong. The public expects more. George Floyd changed American policing. And that's why people want to be talked to. That's why they want to be listened to. And it starts with the police, Don. We have to be the ones who start the conversation, take the initiative, and bring it to the street. You got an advice? I know that's partial advice. You got an advice for departments around the country looking to improve in the short time we have left? Yeah, absolutely. Don't give up on the people. No matter what's happening in your city, don't give up. They're the ones that we are to protect and serve. You walk into your communities, you use your power, your influence, your grassroots, your leaders, and you ask them, will you walk with us? Because we want to walk with you. That's what happened in Flint, Michigan. That's exactly what Sheriff Chris Swanson did. He walked with uh, uh, the protesters, and he understood, and he had a conversation with them, and you met them where they where they are, uh, and that's what we need. That's what America needs. Thank you for your service. I appreciate you joining us here on CNN. Thank you. And Couldn't said it better myself. Um, thank you for listening to this week's episode. Um, please follow me on social media at Tara Setmayer or at honestly underscore Tara or both and leave comments and let me know what you thought. And um, everyone just pray. We need to pray for this country, do our parts to make it better and do everything we can to get Donald Trump out of office. See you next week.